As we open up the Word of God together once again, Judges chapter 14 this morning, let's call upon the Lord and ask for His provision of His Spirit to help us uh, to understand, uh, to apply, um, and, and to meditate upon the Word of life. Father, we are grateful for the gift that you've given to us, that you've made yourself known to men in various ways through the law and the prophets, and now fully and finally, completely through your own Son, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through the ministry of your Spirit, working through his apostles. We now have your word written down for us, and we pray that you would give us the grace to understand it, but not only to understand it, but to meditate upon it, to, to savor its, its sweetness, to delight in the mercies you reveal to us, uh, to tremble at the warnings that you give to us. Fathers, we study the life of Samson. Will you help us to see our Savior? Help us to see clearly our great need. Help us to understand and discern how desperate we are for the touch of our Redeemer to heal us, to ransom us, to pardon us, to deliver us from all wickedness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As we're working our way through the book of Judges, we've come now to the longest uh, characterization, the longest description, the longest narration of any of the Judges. We have Samson, who is, in in many ways, a larger-than-life figure. He's quite a colorful character. There's no getting around that. And there are two prominent themes that come out. I mean, in my normal course of study, I, I, I outline the text, and I notice words and phrases that are repeated, and those kinds of things. And there were really two themes that just jump out in chapter 14. The first is, is this idea of going down, this idea of descending. And part of that's a geographical expression, because in the ancient world, throughout the land of Israel, to come from Jerusalem and go anywhere else, especially going towards the coast, you're going down geographically. But I think the narrator, as we work through this, the narrator has something more substantial in mind than just geographical references, though, when he speaks of Samson going down. It's repeated. In fact, 16 times in the book of Judges, we have this expression, went down or going down. Nine of them are in the Samson narrative, and, and of those, five of them are right here in the one chapter. So the narrator's trying to tell us something here. But then the other thing that comes out is this idea of secrecy. This idea of hidden things. I mean, we have riddles. We have, we have a riddle. We have, we have Samson doing, you know, killing a lion and not telling anyone. Scraping honey out of the carcass of a lion and not telling anyone. And, and we're, these sort of coincide together with Samson's descent. That phrase, going down, always coincides with one of his secrets. So as we work through this, that's, that's really the two main ideas that come out is this idea of secrecy and dissent. Secrecy and dissent. The title of the sermon is Secret Things. Secret Things. I'm going to divide this into under two headings, just two points today. Samson's secrets and the Lord's secret. Samson's secret and the Lord's secret. Should be easy enough to remember. So I'm going to read the text. I'm going to back up two verses into chapter 13. And I think that will become clear as we work our way through the sermon. I'm going to start with verse 24, which gives us the description of Samson's birth. And the next thing we know, he's going down to the land of the Philistines, to Timnah, with his eyes on a foreign wife. So let's hear together the word of God, and may he give us grace both to believe it and to obey it. 
Verse 24 of chapter 13. Then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. And the child grew up, and Yahweh blessed him. And the spirit of Yahweh began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtel. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back up and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So now take her for me as a wife. But his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Take her for me, for she is right in my eyes. However, his father and mother did not know that it was of Yahweh, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now, at that time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel. Then Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother, and they came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. And the spirit of Yahweh rushed upon him mightily, so that he tore it as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. So he went down and spoke to the woman, and she was right in the eyes of Samson. Then he returned later to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. So he scraped the honey into his hands and went on, eating as he went. Then he went to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate it. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the body of the lion. Then his father went down to the woman, and Samson made a feast there, for the young men customarily did this. Now it happened, when they saw him, they took thirty companions to be with him. Then Samson said to them, Let me now propound a riddle to you. If you will indeed tell it to me within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty linen wraps and thirty changes of clothes. But if you are unable to tell me, then you shall give me thirty linen wraps and thirty changes of clothes. And he said to him, and they said to him, Propound your riddle that we may hear it. And so he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. But they could not tell the riddle in three days. Then it happened on the fourth day when they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband so that he will tell us the riddle, or we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? Is this not so? So Samson's wife wept before him and said, You only hate me and do not love me. You have propounded a riddle to the sons of my people and have not told it to me. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told it to my father or mother. So should I tell you? However, she wept before him seven days while their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her, because she pressed him so hard. She then told the riddle to the sons of her people. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Then the spirit of Yahweh came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down thirty of them. 
and took their spoil and gave the changes of clothes to those who told the riddle. And his anger burned, and he went up to his father's house. But Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his friend. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. We, we see here in verses 1 to 3, we have, we have this stage set. I mean, we, we come out of chapter 13 with his birth, and then immediately we're, we're fast-forwarded, as it were, to his adulthood. And Samson goes down to Timnah, and there he sees a woman. He, 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 with his eyes, he lays hold of her, a woman of Timnah, a daughter of the Philistines, and he says, this is the one that I want. And notice how Samson is driven by his passions. This is something we know immediately. The very first thing we're told about Samson after his birth is that this is a man driven by his passions. When chapter 14 opens, he's driven by his romantic passions. And at the end of the chapter, he has anger burning within him. So he goes from from one passion to another. And Samson says to his father, she is right in my eyes. Some of our English translations obscure that a little bit, and and we'll say things like, she's pleasing in my sight, but it literally reads, she is right in my eyes. And that's important because that's a common phrase in the book of Judges, isn't it? That ought to ring immediately familiar to us. That's one of the themes in the book of Judges. Every man, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And Samson says, she is right in my eyes. I don't care that she's a Philistine woman. I don't care that she's not of my, of my father's house or not even of the nation of Israel. That's what I want. She is right in my eyes. And all this is sort of setting the stage for us, not only so we have a, a, a brief character sketch of Samson right off the bat, but it also helps set the stage for what the Lord is going to do through this conflict that, that ensues. I've noticed something here about the, the response. We, the, t- the, the focus tends to be typically on Samson and, and, the, and the request that he makes. He spies with his eyes a foreign woman, says, that's the one I want. He comes in and makes sort of a show of getting his parents' consent, of getting his parents' agreement with this. This is the wife that I want. And his parents, understandably, are, are grieved. And, and they push back. But notice what his parents don't say. I think this is important. What his parents don't say. Nowhere does it do his parents say, but Samson, our people are under a covenant with God, and we cannot marry outside of that covenant. They don't say that, do they? Nowhere do his parents appeal to Samson's life, the, the special call. Samson, son, from the angel of the Lord appeared to your mother and me even before you were born. You've been sanctified from before you entered into your mother's womb. You were set apart as holy to the Lord. Son, please don't defile yourself in this way. They don't say that, do they? They don't say to him, Son, you were appointed by the Lord for a special mission to begin saving our people from the Philistine oppressors. Why would you want to go and marry into those who oppress us? They don't say any of that, do they? What do they do? They appeal to cultural, social, ethnic, and even racial objections. I mean, notice the pejorative language. Why would you go to these uncircumcised Philistines? This isn't moral language. This is racist language. They looked at this and said, she's beneath you, culturally, ethnically, 
There's no moral argument here. The Philistine woman was merely beneath them. There was made no appeal to Samson for the sake of godliness or for the sake of God's will and purpose. Now, there's much to be observed here and learned, I think, as both young people and as parents. There's no more important decision in an earthly sense, outside of a decision to follow after Christ, there's no no more important decision than whom you will marry, to whom you will covet, covenant yourself to spend your entire life. Young people, will you meditate upon this sad example of Samson for all of his strength, for all of his gifts, for all the things that the Lord had provided for him, The beginning of his moral descent begins with the lust for an unlawful woman. It begins with the desire to have something that is illicit for him. He insisted upon marrying a pagan woman. And some, and you can even read through the commentary, some have tried to excuse Samson and say, well, you know, technically, the seven nations that God forbid the people uh, not to marry into, Philistines weren't on that list. Come on now. These are pagan women. These are foreign women. Samson knew better. His parents should have known better. But also parents, for us to look at this, will we seek the face of God to instruct us as parents? Even with those of you who have very little ones, and you think, well, I'm a long way from having to worry about marriage. My daughter's three. My son is five. Or whatever it is. I'm a long way away. It's never too early. It's never too early. Parents, don't neglect and don't underestimate the ability you have to cultivate the appetites of your children. We cultivate their appetites in other ways. We teach them to eat broccoli. We teach them to eat things that they wouldn't ordinarily like. We teach them, we ought to teach them, to look for things, to be attracted to godly things, to be attracted to virtues that God has said are good, to to look for attributes that God says is good. What are we teaching our children to prioritize as they seek a mate? And and we think about the objections we might have as parents. Are they more practical, cultural, social, ethnic? Do we think in those terms, or do we think in terms of, is this a godly man? Is this a godly woman? Is this a faithful churchman? Is this a faithful churchwoman? Or do we think in terms of, well, they've got a good college degree, they're successful, they've got a good job, they've come from a good family. What are the things that we're looking for? Matthew Henry makes this observation. He says, He that in the choice of a wife is guided only by his eyes and governed by his fancy must afterwards think himself if he find himself or find a Philistine in his arms. Well, ladies, that goes the other way too. If you are guided, ladies, by your eye, by your fancy, you have only yourself to thank if you find that you have a Philistine in your arms. Now this sets the stage for what happens next. It's fascinating to look at the whole narrative. In fact, one commentator looks at the chapters and goes backwards from chapter 16, and he works through 21 connecting links in a chain. That this happens, and this happens, and this happens, looking at the relationship of cause and effect. And if you, and it's a good exercise for you to do in your own studies, is to go back and go through and read chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, and then work yourself back and say, okay, this happened because this happened because this happened because this happened. Well, we're seeing here a chain of events that starts with Samson's eyes. It starts with him wanting something that he should not have wanted. 
And it sets the stage for what happens in the rest of the chapter, in fact, the rest of the whole narrative of Samson's life. Thus begins his descent. And again, this is marked by several of these going down statements. So notice first, we have, we have three secrets that are revealed, and each one immediately is, is, or is preceded by a going down statement. We have the secret of the lion, the secret of the honey, and the secret of the riddle. And each one is begun by that same phrase, Samson went down, or his father went down. Look at verse 6. And the spirit of Yahweh came upon him mightily. So well, let's back up to verse 5. Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother, and they came as far as the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. Now, let's don't miss something here. Notice the scene. Where are they? Or he is in a vineyard. Now, that's a problem. Do you know why? Because he's a Nazarite from the womb. He's not supposed to have wine or strong drink or even eat a grape. Now, this is not... This was not the command for all Israelites. It's certainly not the command for all Christians, but it was the specific vow that the Lord had given through Samson's mother and father for him from the womb. And here Samson is hanging out in a vineyard. And a lion comes upon him. The spirit of the Lord rushes in, rushes upon him, and he tears this lion in two. Basically, he breaks its neck, just like he would to strangle a young goat. And the text tells us there was nothing in his hands. This wasn't a weapon. This was his own bare strength, just as later David would do. David testified, this Philistine giant doesn't scare me. I've wrestled a lion and a bear with my own bare hands and killed them both. But look at verse 6, the very end of the verse. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Why not? I mean... Why did he not tell them about the, that he killed a lion? Answers, I don't know. I really don't know. Partly, maybe because he was in a place that he knew his parents would have chastised him. What were you doing in a vineyard? Mom, you're missing the point of the story. I killed a lion with my bare head. Yeah, but what were you doing in a vineyard? And he didn't want that conversation. Then we'll get down to verse 9. He comes along. He had returned to take the woman. He turned aside to see the carcass of the lion in verse 8. And, and behold, this is an unusual thing. Bees don't ordinarily build hives and dead bodies. Hollowed out trees, sure. Dead bodies, no. So even the way it's written, behold, this is unusual. Behold, there's a swarm of bees and honey were in the lion, in the body of the lion. So he scraped the honey into his hands and he went on, eating as he went. What's, we have a second problem already with respect to the Nazaritic vow, don't we? He's not supposed to touch any unclean thing, no dead body. And again, some of the commentators have tried to twist this and say, well, you know, technically, it's a human body that was unclean, not an animal's body. But again, we're trying to make excuses for Samson. Samson is going down. From from the very beginning, he's descending morally. And we see that. In many ways, Samson parallels all of Israel in this respect. They're on a downward slide, a downward trajectory. We've already seen that. This spiral, as this cycle continues, and each time the cycle continues, they're going further and further downward. But verse 9 closes with, he gave honey to his parents, but he did not tell them that he'd scraped the honey out of a dead lion. Again, why didn't he tell them? I'm not told exactly. It's probably not hard to speculate. Didn't want to have that conversation either. 
Then in verse 16, so he's told this riddle. He's told the, the riddle to these Philistine companions. And his wife begins to weep before him. She begins to lay it on pretty thick. And he says, look, I haven't told even my mother and father. Why would I tell you? So in each of these cases, we have Samson maintaining a secret, and each one of those secrets is marked by a further dissent, morally speaking. See, Samson's life is, is immediately marked by impulsivity. He sees, he wants, he takes, and he conceals. These are not good qualities for a young man. These are not good qualities for a young woman to see, to want, to take, and to conceal. And yet, how often do we see these kinds of patterns? In many ways, Samson serves as a metaphor for all of Israel. You know, as, 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 as Samson is working, as, as we see, I work our way through this narrative and sort of put ourselves, if we had some sort of VR goggles here, and watch this through Samson's eyes as he's making this descent. He shows up to take this Philistine woman. He sees her. She is pleasing in his eyes. She is right in his own eyes. So then he comes down and throws a feast. We're told this is what's customary among the young men. Well, what young men? The pagan young men. And, and the feast, the, the English Bibles translate this feast, but the word literally means a drinking party. It was a seven-day binge. Now, do you think that Samson hosted the seven-day binge but did not partake? You're more generous than I am if you think that. So again, Samson is playing fast and loose with his Nazaritic vow. It seems to mean nothing to him. The, the holiness of God, the purpose of God, the calling of God on his life seems to account for nothing to Samson. He's driven by his impulses. He's driven by his flesh. He's driven by his lusts and his wants. But he's also a pretty impressive young man. Notice that when he goes down, verse 11, now it happened that when they saw him, when the Philistines saw him, they took 30 companions to be with them. And you think, oh, this is so nice. They are so hospitable. They've given him seven buddies, seven friends for his party. No, they took one look at him and said, we need 30 escorts. This guy was huge. His strength was, a, was apparent. And said, we want to surround him with 30, probably not their 30 weakest men either. And so Samson, immediately kind of seeing what's going on, says, oh, let's play a little game. Tell you what, I'll do a riddle. If you're impressed with my, my physical brawn, how about I outsmart you as well? So he bets them 30 garments, which was no small bet. I mean, we take for granted that you can, you can go to a thrift store, you can go online, you can go to Walmart, you can get clothes relatively inexpensively. That was not the case in the ancient world where everything was handmade. And so for 30 undergarments and 30 outer garments, complete sets, was no small price. And we're going to find out later, Samson's betting on something he doesn't even have. He's not betting from his own reserves. He's assuming, I'm winning this bet. I don't even need to have something to cover my bet because I'm going to win this. And partly because he gives them, frankly, a, a, a riddle that wasn't answerable. There was no way they could have guessed this. A, a true riddle is something that, if you're astute enough, you really can guess it. 
This is not some. This wasn't a fair bet. But that's not how the how Samson lives. He's not looking for fair bets. Samson again serves as a metaphor for Israel. Let me think about this. He, we see in Samson a miraculous birth. He's set apart from the very beginning as holy to the Lord, just like Israel. Israel was endowed with supernatural strength and provision by the direct and immediate hand of God, just like Samson. Yet from Samson's youth, and we could say from Israel's, can I use air quotes, youth? From the very beginning of the nation, they had easily been drawn away from the Lord, chasing after foreign seductions of various kinds. So Samson serves as a type for Israel, sort of looking back. We're going to see he, he serves as a, as a negative type for a Savior who would come. But Samson also serves as a metaphor, I think, for many young Christians and for many Christian families in our culture, in our day. Samson was born into a... a I'm going to use air quotes again. A good family. Good seems to be a moral family. He, he had many advantages, gifts, strengths in a material sense. He, he had some, some, some spiritual heritage, but you know, often it was incomplete or superficial or insufficient. But the name of God was mentioned around the dinner table, surely. Things of God were, were sort of given lip service, but they weren't really... Prioritize. It didn't shape and form his life. It was just something that was part of their culture. Samson, like many modern young Christians and Christian families, proved himself to be enamored by the world and obsessed with making a place in the world without offending anyone. He was marked by his physical and material passions rather than a pursuit of God and his purposes. So, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. There's a warning for us here. It's not explicit. We don't have in the text of thou shalt not, but can we, can we all agree? There's a warning here that's given to us very vividly. Samson's lust and his parents' failures are not the whole story, though. Samson's not the only one with secrets. The main mover in the Samson narrative is actually Yahweh. In chapter 13, we see this, and this reason I backed up a couple verses to be at the end of chapter 13. What we find is that Yahweh's pre- presence is, is dramatically revealed to Mr. and Mrs. Manoah. We saw that last week. The angel of the Lord, Yahweh himself appears to them. Then in chapter 14, Yahweh's activity is just as dramatic, but it's not as explicit. It's, it's just as significant, but it's not spelled out for us in black and white to, to the same degree. So let's look next at the Lord's secret. We've looked at Samson's secrets, plural. Now let's, let's think about Yahweh's secret. Again, look back at verse 20, 24 and 25 of chapter 13. The woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson, and the child grew up, and Yahweh blessed him. And the spirit of Yahweh began to stir him. And you think, well, that's a good thing, isn't it? The, the Yahweh is, is really emboldening him and giving him courage. Nowhere else in the Old Testament is this word used favorably. Most of the time, in fact, it's used for someone whose sleep has been disturbed. Where a pagan king has been up all night because he's tossing and turning. He's had a dream. He's had some sort of vision, and he's disturbed by it. What is the Lord doing here? 
See, there's a secret hand, a secret providence taking place already from the very beginning with Samson. Remember last week, one of the, the, the things that chapter 13 communicates to us is the complacency of God's people. They were under the oppression, the boot heel of the Philistines, and they didn't even care. They had grown so accustomed to it, so accustomed and complacent to living under that oppression that they didn't even have the sense to cry out to the Lord. We saw that in the beginning of the chapter 13, we, we, that ordinary cycle. The people did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord handed them over to their oppressors, and they called out to the Lord for deliverance. Only we don't see them call out. When the Philistines oppressed them for 40 years, an entire generation, Mr. and Mrs. Manoah probably had never lived a time when the Philistines were not oppressing them. Samson certainly had never lived in a time when the Philistines didn't oppress them. They just accepted that as normal. And we observed last week that some of us approach sin in that way. We've just gotten accustomed to it. We just live with it. We just think this is normal. Everybody does this. And the Lord provokes us to think differently. Well, here, the Lord begins to stir up Samson because the Lord knows, in his wisdom, there wasn't going to even be a conflict. And all the other judges, when he raised up Gideon, he didn't have to convince Gideon that the Midianites were a problem. He didn't have to convince Jephthah that their enemies were a problem. But Samson is raised up from the womb. And the people of God are so complacent, and we see in the life of Samson, he's so cozy with the enemies that God had to do something in him and through him in order to provoke a conflict, in order to provoke the people of God to understand and discern, we've got a problem. So he began, the Lord begins to stir. In fact, verses, verse 25 of chapter 13, and then verse 4 of chapter 14 are the interpretive keys for this whole narrative. Look at verse 4 of chapter 14. However, so here's this exchange with, with the father, with Samson's father and mother, trying to talk him out of marrying the Philistine woman. Verse 4 tells us, however, his father and mother did not know that it was of Yahweh, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. We have here revealed a divine secret. The narrator, as it were, pulls back the curtain and shows us the secret will of God. We don't often get that in real life, do we? The, the Lord doesn't sort of pull back the curtain and tell us, this is my secret will, this is what's actually going on. But here, Samson doesn't know this. We're told explicitly his parents don't know this. Even though they had been visited by the angel of, of Yahweh, they'd been visited by Yahweh himself, and yet they don't realize the Lord is the one stirring this up. Now, that's not to excuse Samson's sin. That's not to excuse his folly. But it tells us, the reader, there's something else going on. There's more than meets the eye here. There is a divine secret, a divine mystery, a divine riddle. Now, once again, some will try to say that the, 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 the verse 4 is the interpretive key, and then the, interpretive, the, the key word in that one verse is the pronoun he. Who is he that wishes to stir something up? With the Philistines. And some have said, well, it's Samson. Samson is, he has this master plot. You know, the way to really get the Philistines is it's got to be an inside job. So I'm going to marry a Philistine woman. And, and No, no. And there are respected commentators who take that position, but that's not it. The, the most obvious, because one, the, the nearness, the, for you grammarians, the antecedent, has to be Yahweh, not Samson. 
But more than that, we have no other evidence in here that Samson is looking to the Lord and looking in any way to fulfill a godly purpose. He's just acting by his glands, not his, not his will to serve the Lord. There is a divine mystery, a divine riddle at work. So the question is, can we solve it? In seven days' time, without cheating, the Philistines could not solve Samson's riddle. Can we solve the divine riddle? The answer is no. So from here on, if you're thinking you're going to get the answer to the question the rest of the sermon, sorry, I'm going to disappoint you. We don't have the answer to this. We are actually more helpless than Samson's Philistine companions unless the Lord reveals to us his secret purposes, we don't know. We have here in, in the Samson narrative really an amazing example of this mysterious interplay that's going on all the time. This mysterious interplay between human activity and divine power. B- between human intentions and the purposes of God. Does that ever just mystify you? Do you ever sit back and wonder? I do. And we ask those, those really big, bold questions like, why? What is going on here? This, this mystery of God's providence perplexes men, doesn't it? It perplexes us. And sometimes it can unsettle us. But the message of the book of, of, of Judges here with the Samson narrative is not to unsettle us. It's actually to do the opposite. It's actually to teach us and encourage us and, and embolden us to believe that even when we can't see what's going on, even when, when there's no narrator in our life who opens the veil and says, hey, here's the secret plan of God here. We don't usually get that. And if somebody tells you they have it, run, run the other way. Listen to how our, our confession of faith describes this. I'm going to read three, three different paragraphs out of our, our confession on the doctrine of providence. This is in the fifth chapter. This is a summary of what we believe the Word of God teaches about the doctrine of providence. And that's, it's a fascinating doctrine. The word providence, you can look through your concordance, you can, look, you can read from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation, you will never find the word providence in your Bible. But the concept is everywhere. God's mighty, secret, deliberate, purposeful hand, all wise, all powerful, is constantly at work in, in, in verse or paragraph one of divine providence, if you if you have a if you don't have a copy with you, you can grab a Trinity hymnal, one of the blue hymnals in front of your seat, and on the back of that, on page six seventy three, you'll find this chapter. Paragraph one reads this way, and this is again we believe this is a summary of what the scriptures teach about God's providence, and we first define it: God, the good Creator of all things. In his infinite power and wisdom does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created according according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Now let's think about how this works itself out in the Samson narrative. God is, according to his infinite power and wisdom, is upholding, directing, disposing, and governing all creatures and things, even bees, nesting in a dead body. That doesn't normally happen. 
But God, in his infinite wisdom, has purpose that this particular beehive, in this particular time and place, would make honey in a dead lion. And this is according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable, unchanging counsel of his own will. Then in paragraph 2, we read this. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, So before God created the world, he had decreed and purposed all things that would come to pass. Every detail, every circumstance, every contingency, everything that would come to pass, God has decreed that infallibly, unchangingly. And although in relation to his foreknowledge and decree, God is the first cause of all things that come to pass immutably and infallibly, so that there is nothing, there is not anything befalls by any chance or without his providence. Yet by the same providence, he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. God is the first cause of all things, and yet he uses the actions of men and even beasts to accomplish his purposes. We've been reading through First Kings in our family devotions, and there's the passage where where the lion comes out and attacks the prophet, knocks him off his donkey, kills the prophet, and then the lion and the donkey both sit there together for hours. Well, that doesn't happen, does it? God in his providential rule rules even over a lion, over a donkey, over bees. And, and God works out these second causes. They come out, these nature of second causes work themselves out, sometimes necessarily. If, if, if I drop something from this pulpit, it's going to hit the ground, necessarily because of gravity. But other things work out freely. Samson went and saw a Philistine woman in Timnon and said, that's the one I want. By his own wicked desires and choices, freely, according to his own free will, God is working those things out using even Samson's illicit desires to accomplish his purpose. Where we happen to be told in this particular case that God intended to stir up a conflict with the Philistines. Sometimes that has worked out contingently. We see this throughout the book or through this narrative of, of Samson. This thing happens, then the next thing happens, then the next domino falls. And it's almost like you've set up the big train of dominoes and you knock over the first one, and necessarily, contingently, the next one falls after the next one and the next one and the next one. Even Samson's sinful desires, even his impulsive actions were ordained and used by God to accomplish his perfect, wise, and holy purposes. Again, isn't that mind-boggling? This is not a mystery I can unravel. It's not something I can explain to you. I can just simply state this is what the Scriptures teach. And there are mysteries in the mind of God that you and I don't have access to. Then I'm going to read one more paragraph. Skip down to paragraph 4 of the chapter of Divine Providence. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that his determinate counsel extends itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men. Now, if your brain doesn't hurt reading that, then you don't really understand what you're reading, do you? God's almighty power, his unsearchable wisdom, 
and his infinite goodness are all displayed in the way he works these things out, even through sinful actions of men and angels. And that not by a bare permission. God's not merely passively permitting something. That, that God, by the, we're told in the scriptures that by the word of Christ's power, all things hold together. Everything consists. The pulpit on which my Bible rests is being held together at the molecular level with all the atoms and nucleus and protons and electrons, and you scientists will understand that I don't make sense. But that's all being held together by the very word of Christ. He can't be passive. He can't give a bare permission. Samson wouldn't have the breath, wouldn't have the brain cells, wouldn't have the testosterone in his body to provoke a wicked thought if God wasn't doing it. You see, he can't be passive. It's not a bare permission. And yet, he has also wisely and powerfully bounded and otherwise orders and governs in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends, his most holy purposes. Yet, so as the sinfulness of their acts proceedeth only from the creatures and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. So God is the first cause. He planned all of this, and yet it is Samson's own wicked actions that are causing it, that are the second cause, and that's where the sin proceeds from. Now, again, I will confess to you that I can't solve this divine riddle. There's a mystery here within the mind of God. God uses and ordains actions, even sinful actions, to accomplish his holy purposes. That's a scriptural fact. And, and God has not called us to solve the riddle. Maybe this is a release of a burden for some of you. You're not called to solve it. God has not obligated you to figure it out. Sometimes we think we've got to, we've got to discern things and read the tea leaves and, and, and get a vision or get a word or, or, or something and figure out God's secret will before we can move forward. Nowhere does God require that of us. In fact... His word says something very, the very opposite of that. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, it's an easy address to remember, isn't it? 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So what is God telling us? There are things in my mind that are not your business. But I have made other things that are your business, you are obligated to do those. So it's almost as if the Lord says, when you're through doing that, come back to me. When you've done what I've commanded you to do, when you've exercised faithfulness and obedience in what I have revealed to you in my word, when you've exhausted all that and you're out of things to do, come talk to me. You know I'm being sarcastic, right? We will never exhaust those things. Not only does God not reveal to us all that he is doing in the world or in our lives, but but one, he's not obligated to tell us. He was not obligated. The Lord did no wrong to Samson by not telling him what was in his mind all along. The Lord did no wrong to Manoah and Mrs. Manoah by not telling them what his plan was. Secondly, we're not obligated to try to discern those hidden purposes. It is not our duty. It is not our, a requirement that God has placed upon us to wrestle through those things and sort of figure out 
what God is up to. Our duty is, is to obey what he has revealed to us. And it remains a mystery, especially to our, our very finite human minds, how God can use sinful things, sinful deeds, sinful words, sinful purposes of men, the deeds of the wicked, to accomplish his most holy ends. How does that work? Well, God is God and we are not. And, and that's, that's, that's not just a trite explanation. It really is the long and the short of it. God is able to do things that you and I are not able to do. There's a wonderful illustration from um, Herbert Bavink in his, the second volume of his Reformed Dogmatics. He uses this illustration. He says, just as a father forbids a child to use a sharp knife, though he, the father himself, uses it without any ill results, so God forbids us rational creatures to commit the sin that he himself can and does use as a means to glorify his name. See, we would hurt ourselves. God is able to use even those wicked deeds to accomplish his purposes. But can we, mere creatures, shouldn't, should not we be able to take comfort in the fact that our Heavenly Father is working powerfully, that he's working infallibly, that he's working perpetually in ways that we may never perceive, and he's doing all these things to accomplish his holy ends? I mean, when you look around the world and you, and you see sin and evil prospering, when you see the wicked rejoicing, when you see all kinds of, of, of wicked deeds and, and even natural calamities happening around us, can you take comfort in the fact that God uses even those present distresses, even that wickedness, to accomplish his purposes? Now, we all, we all love to quote from Romans 8.28, but notice that God does not say that God works together all good things for good. He works together all things for good, without exception. Even the sin that you discover in your own heart, and this is not to take away your responsibility, it's not to take away, not to excuse you or permit you or permit me to continue in sin, but even when we discover sin in ourselves, can you take comfort in the fact that God uses even that for good? Can, can you train yourself, according to the Scriptures, by the power of His Spirit to rejoice that God, in His faithfulness, uses even that? Even your pride? Even your anxieties? Even your sharp words? Even your sinful thoughts? Even your lustful eyes? That God will use that for your good? Well, we know the question that comes up then. Same question that Paul asked. Well, should we then sin more that grace will abound? You know Paul's answer, may it never be. That misses the point. But it ought to bring comfort to our souls that even in our own, our own sin is used by God to accomplish our deliverance and, and to display his glory and his wisdom and his power and his glorious grace in us and among us. And you know this to be true. Things that, that have happened to you, things that... that your own sin or things that sins against you, and you think in the moment, how is this ever going to happen for anything good? And a month or a year or 10 years later, you look back and say, wow, that was a real turning point. God used that to accomplish something that I would never have been able to do on my own. We can see this in retrospect. We can see this in the hindsight of our rearview mirror. But can we sort all this out? I mean, can we discover the solution to the riddle of man's sinful actions and divine good purpose 
No. No, we can't. In fact, in this life, we're often left wondering, why? Why has this happened? You know, in, in Sunday school, we've been working through the book of Esther, and it's just been a wonderful display of God's faithful providence. I mean, do you ever think Esther, as she's, as she's getting these reports from Mordecai, and, and the, the decree goes out for all the Jews to be destroyed, do you think Mordecai or Esther ever think, God, why? Why is this happening? Do you think Joseph, when he was falsely accused and he's sitting in Potiphar's prison, and he finds himself, why? why? Why am I here? I did nothing wrong. I fled from unrighteousness, and here I am in prison. Why? Why, why did the man who saw, I told him his dream, he said he would remember me, and he didn't. Why? And yet we know how that story ends. Joseph, by his own lips, had learned the doctrine of providence. He looked at his brothers right in the eye. He said, what you intended for evil, God meant for good to bring about a great salvation for all these people today. Or in Acts chapter 2, the most, the most vivid example of this is Peter preaches at Pentecost. And, he, and he's sort of recounting all of the Jewish history of rebellion and sin against God and their idolatry and their blasphemy. And he looks at the crowd and he says, And you men, you, you handed the Christ over to sinful men. By the hand of wicked and lawless men, they put him to death by the express purpose and foreknowledge of God. All that was planned to the letter from eternity to bring about a great salvation. Even Judas' betrayal, the complicity of Caiaphas, the, the, the pride and the hubris of Pontius Pilate, all of that was ordained by God. And he used all of those things to accomplish his purposes. So can we sort all this out? No. William Cooper, I love this hymn. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. See, Samson is a divinely appointed judge, used mightily of God, but he only begins to save Israel. He only begins to. And we see as this narrative closes in chapter 14, after the, his 30 companions go and, to use Samson's words, plow with his heifer. And, and yes, ladies, in any culture, at any time, that's not a favorable statement. Samson knows they don't solve the riddle unless they get the goods from his wife. And we have a little bit of a foreshadowing here, too, in terms of the, the weakness of Samson. His first wife um, just goes on and on and on for seven days. Now, she's after him even before the Philistines come to her. Because she's the whole time of the feast, we're told, she's, she's after him. Now, it escalates after the fourth day, because at that time, the fourth day, the, the Philistines come to her and said, it's, almost, it's kind of a mob tactic here, isn't it? They come and look at her and her father's house and say, it's a nice place here. It's a shame if somebody were to burn it down. And so 
she escalates her efforts, and she goes and, and, and plies him with her tears and presses hard. It's the same phrase that we're going to see later on that Delilah does to him. So chapter 14 closes with the death of merely 30 Philistines. 40 years of oppression. And here's what seems to be a, a, a paltry down payment. It's 30 of them. Samson goes and he kills them, takes their clothes, and, and gives that as the payment for the bet. So Samson at least has got some honesty, I guess, going for him. He pays his bets. Now, you might think, well, that's not a very good start. Surely the oppression of such an enemy as the Philistines needs a more decisive blow than 30 men. And I think you'd be right to think that. We do need a much greater salvation. We, we need a greater Savior than Samson ever was. We need a better judge. Samson points us to the one who did not merely begin to save Israel, but the one who provided for the full and complete deliverance and rescue and salvation and redemption of Israel. Now, I belong to probably the last generation who grew up with a film camera. Some of you I know, you, you, you know, you remember going on a trip and you had to decide, do I splurge for the 36 shots or the 24? Now, you, you grew up, those of you who grew up in the iPhone and you think pictures are free, they weren't always free. And you had to choose, you know, how many do I want to take? And I'm going to be very careful with the shot. Hey, can you take my picture? Mm, I don't think you're worth it. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, kind of add that up. And then you had to pay for processing and all that. But, you, but when you went and picked up your pictures after they'd been processed and printed, you got a sleeve full of negatives. And if you hold the negative up to the light, you could kind of see, well, that's, that's a picture of a car. Or that's a picture of a person. I think I can tell who it is. But all the colors are reversed. The black is white. The white is black. The yellow is purple. The purple is yellow. The orange is blue. The blue is orange. If you look at the color wheel, everything's the opposite. The red is green, and the green is red. And in many, think, in many respects, I think it's right to think of Samson as sort of a negative image of Christ, particularly at this stage of his life. You hold the image up of Samson to the light, say, I can see it. He's a savior. But everything's opposite. Samson was self-interested. He was driven by his own his, his desires of his own flesh. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. See, see, Samson was driven by what was right in his own eyes. Christ's entire food was to do the will of his father. Samson's most significant attribute was his physical strength, so that even the Philistines assigned 30 companions to him for the party. Christ had no form which caused anybody to marvel at him. There's nothing physical about Christ that was impressive. Samson fraternized with the enemy for his own gain, for his own benefit, for his own you know, indulgence. Christ was often found among sinners, but for their healing, for their rescue. See, Samson was, was full of sin from the very beginning, and, and yet Christ had not any sin. He'd never committed sin. He knew no sin, and yet on the cross... He became sin for us. 
He gave himself up for his people. And by doing so, he satisfied divine wrath finally and completely. Now this list could go, go on and on and on, but Samson was, was raised up by the sovereign degree, decree, by the eternal providence of God, to begin to deliver his people. But Christ is the Savior who has come. Christ is that greater judge. Christ is the one who has come and saved to the uttermost. Those who will believe. One of the things that we find out of, out of Judges 14, and again, this is, this is continuing on in the narrative, is, is we see the dominoes begin to fall. But take note of those secret things that are revealed to us in part in Samson, but, but it leaves us with a desire to know more, to see more, to discover more, and, and that has that, that full discovery of God's plan of redemption, of God's plan to deliver a people, has now been revealed to us in Christ Jesus. Will you believe that? Will you believe that, that God has sent His only begotten Son, not a sinful Savior, not, not a self-centered Savior, but one who divested himself of all the glories of heaven, came and took on our own humanity, body and soul, took upon his own body our sin that we justly deserved. And God in his mercy has placed it upon the Savior for those who believe. And if you're in Christ, it means also all of his perfection, all of his righteousness, everything that Samson lacked, Christ fulfilled. And that is yours by faith. Will you believe that? Will you persevere in that? And then also, will you believe that, that as you look out and you survey the world around you, as you look in and survey the world within you, will you take comfort that God is at work? Even when you don't see his secret hand, even when you don't see what you may want to see, that God is always, always, always working and interceding and delivering and rescuing you. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you in the name of Christ, in, in the name of the one who is mightier than Samson, the one who has come to seek and to save the lost. Father, will you give us the grace to count ourselves and number ourselves among the lost, among those who need a renewal, a new birth, a rescue, we need your divine wrath satisfied. We thank you that in Christ there has not been merely a down payment made, not merely the beginning of our deliverance, but a full satisfaction of your wrath. And there's not one, not one drop of the cup of divine wrath left for us to drink, that Christ has drunk it all. As we prepare ourselves now, Lord, for the for the supper that our Lord instituted, will you help us to see him clearly? To behold his, his body and his blood. To believe the precious promises that are attended upon these ordinances. Help us to walk before him in faith. Help us to walk with increasing obedience. Help us to delight and to love our triune God, and our neighbor as ourselves. We ask this in Christ and for his sake. Amen.